Hello, and welcome to Birds of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 26, Let's Go Cuckoo. Welcome back to the second part of our exploration on the free-loading parasites of the avian world. Last time we met some pirates, kidnappers, and a pair of vampires. This time, oh, 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 things are going to get juicy. This episode has it all. Infanticide, changelings, disguise, murder, and the mafia. That's right, this time we're talking about cuckoos. Maybe you know them as the cute carved figurines that pop out of German clocks to let you know what time it is. Cuckoo. And incidentally, that is why cuckoos are called cuckoo. They make a cuckoo sound. Onomatopoeia. But cuckoos are a fascinating family of birds, and you probably already have a fair idea of what they're all about. They're famous, infamous, for laying eggs in other birds' nests. They are the deadbeat parents of the bird world. They can't be bothered raising their own young, so they foist them onto someone else. In the process, the poor foster parents lose their own babies and get tricked into raising someone else's. When you stop to think about the implications, it's pretty grim stuff. Their children are murdered. They raise a changeling baby that quickly grows to be a monstrous thing, usually far bigger than the tiny host parent. There's nothing sadder than seeing a couple of little birds feeding a big hulking lump of a baby that barely even fits in the nest. Clearly not their own chick. On the surface, it may seem like the cuckoo is the lowest of cheats, It squeezes an egg into a nest and then skives off to do whatever a freeloading cheat does when it isn't raising a child. But when we dig further, we find that the cuckoo lifestyle may not be as easy as it seems. In fact, for millions of years, cuckoos and their hosts have been in an evolutionary arms race. Their hosts are always finding new ways to identify and reject the counterfeit eggs while the cuckoos are always finding new ways to trick and deceive their dupes. Some of them go to so much trouble that you'd think it'd be easier to just raise the dang babies themselves. Sometimes, freeloaders do end up paying, just in a different way. Now we've got a lot to unpack and times are wasting, so let's jump right in and learn everything we can about brood parasitism. In the last episode, we spoke about some pretty horrific things. Blood-sucking kidnapping and food thievery. Definitely the worst in my opinion, hands off my schnacks. But there is no more horror-inducing condition that I can think of than pregnancy. Naturally, a baby growing in its mother's womb is a parasite. I honestly can't think of any other way to conceive of such a thing, pun intended. These terrible little creatures live off their mother, sucking her dry of nutrients so it may grow. During pregnancy, the mother's immune system is even suppressed lest her body recognise the baby for the intruder it is, and kill it dead. If that isn't proof enough for you, I don't know what is. But this is why I like birds. Birds don't do pregnancy. They get it. Sure, there is a short period while the egg is developing and fertilised that we could think of the bird as technically pregnant, but as soon as the mother can lay the egg, she does. She expels that parasite pronto. You've got to respect that. Of course, the reason birds boot the egg as soon as they can is because they want to keep their weight down. 
Flying is a taxing business, energy-wise, and every ounce you carry is energy expended. So birds don't carry what they don't need to. But unlike their reptilian cousins, who lay their eggs and then bugger off, birds are attentive parents and put a lot of effort into incubating their eggs and then caring for the hatchlings. So while pregnancy might be an external affair for birds, it is no less difficult. Although, because the pregnancy is external, it does mean the man can help shoulder some of the burden. Am I right, my sisters? However, just like crocodiles buck the reptilian trend and care for their eggs, there are birds who shirk their parental duties and outsource the effort. These are the brood parasites. You might know them better as cuckoos the freeloader who tricks some other bird into raising their kids. It's something I'm sure every parent has fantasised about at one point or another. Although, I suspect fewer parents have fantasised about killing the other kid, disguising your kid as their kid, and then making the other parents raise it as their own. But hey, what you dream about late at night is your own business, I sure as hell won't judge. But, as we do in every episode, we are getting ahead of ourselves. Before we go too far, we should clear something up. Because not every cuckoo lays its eggs in someone else's nest, and there are many birds who do that aren't cuckoos. Yeah, sorry, as always, it's complicated. All in all, there are about 300 or so species that secret their eggs into an unsuspecting bird's nest. Of course, sometimes this behaviour can be rather benign. Many birds lay some of their eggs into a nest that belongs to another member of their own species. Usually, they also make their own nest and incubate their own eggs as well, and maybe some of their neighbours, because someone probably secretly slipped eggs into their nest too. This is called intraspecific brood parasitism, and many birds do this as a type of insurance policy. Literally, not putting all your eggs in one basket. If a disaster was to befall your nest and all your chicks died... Well, that would suck, but at least there's a chance that out there somewhere, a few of your babies survived under the care of their foster parents. And if your nest survived, there's always a chance you helped raise your neighbour's chicks. It's a mutually beneficial practice, so naturally we're not interested in it. What we're interested in are parents with no desire to make a nest of their own, who are intent on making someone else do the job for them. This is called interspecific obligate brood parasitism. There are a lot of big words there, so let's break it down. Interspecific. The host bird belongs to a different species. This is distinct from intraspecific. That's when the host bird is the same species. Intra, mutually beneficial. Inter, parasitic. Obligate. This means you don't have a choice. Laying your egg in another bird's nest is the only method you have of reproducing. Brood? That's your children. Your offspring. Your brood. Parasitism. That's the thing we've been talking about for the last two episodes. So the next time you're at a cocktail party, you can impress everyone with this fun new phrase. Interspecific, obligate brood, parasitism. The cuckoos. By Jove, I pronounce you the most whimsical chap of the season. The number of birds that match the interspecific obligate brood parasitism criteria is a little narrower. 
In the whole wide bird world, there are about 100 species that fall into this category, and as I mentioned before, not all of them are cuckoos. Now there must be some evolutionary advantage to being freeloader, because brood parasitism has evolved independently at least seven times. The most famous family is of course the cuckoos. They belong to their own unique order of birds, cuckluiformes, and they're not really related to any other birds other than the African terracos. All in all, there are about 150 cuckoos in the family. Genetic research has shown that within the group, brood parasitism evolved independently three times, and there are 60 or so species that practice it, which means the majority of cuckoos actually raise their own young. Next, brood parasitism evolved twice among passerine birds. There are six cowbirds in the family Erectidae and 20 indigo birds in the family Viduidae. More on them later. Next, it evolved again in at least eight members of the honeyguide family Indictatoridae. <clears throat> Let me try that again. Indictatoridae. Honeyguides are fascinating birds that deserve an episode to themselves, but more on them as well later. And finally, brood parasitism evolved once more in one lone species of duck. The cuckoo duck. Now, while all these birds share the trait of laying their eggs in someone else's nest, they have different strategies for achieving the same goal. Let's begin with the duck, the most innocent of the bunch, and then move into the more sinister families. As far as brood parasitism goes, the cuckoo duck is probably the best you can hope for. This duck doesn't destroy any of the host's eggs, and when its egg hatches, the nestling doesn't kill any of its foster siblings. In fact, it doesn't even steal any of their food. You see, ducklings are what we call precocial. When they hatch, they start life fully feathered. They can see, they can swim, they can dance! No, I, I, no scratch that last one. But they can feed themselves. They're quite precocious. And indeed, that's where the word comes from. This is the opposite to most other birds who are born blind, featherless, and helpless. We call these tricks ultricial. Just remember, precocial can look after themselves. They're precocious. What's the alternative? Ultricial. Totally defenseless. Yet more fun words to share at the next cocktail party. People, people, people still go to cocktail parties, right? Because ducklings don't need anything from their host, within a few hours of hatching, they will realise the nest they're in doesn't belong to them and hightail it out of there. Which is probably a good thing. Cuckoo ducks have a habit of laying their eggs in gull nests. Birds that have no qualms about eating ducklings should they come across one. That seems like a risky move to me, but hey, it must be working for them. So really, the only thing a cuckoo duck steals from its host is a nice nest and a warm butt. Now, the other 99 brood parasites aren't so kind. On the surface, it may look like the parasite lives the parenting dream, offloading the kids and then going on a European holiday with the money it didn't waste raising a child. But this is a strategy for passing down genes to the next generation, and just like any other strategy, there are pros and cons, advantages, and costs. Squeezing an egg into another bird's nest and then skiving off for the rest of the day may sound easy, in theory, but in practice it isn't as straightforward as you might think. Step one, you need to find a host. 
Some of these birds aren't fussy. A cowbird is more than happy to lay its egg in any one of some 170 different host species. Some birds, though, have a single host that they target exclusively. For example, the village indigo bird only lays its eggs in the nest of red-bellied firefinches. I mean, what a name. Other birds, like the Pacific coal, fall in the middle, with a small handful of hosts they target, like firebirds and wattlebirds. But it really doesn't matter. No matter who you're targeting, it takes work to track down a host, find their nest, and then keep tabs on it, waiting for the right moment to strike. Which brings us to step two, getting your egg in the nest. Now here again, there are different approaches a parasite can take. Some will stake out a nest and wait for an opening when the parents are away to quickly swoop in and lay. This can take a little bit of timing, not only to get their opening, but also to lay at the right moment to ensure their egg will hatch first and have a head start over the host's chicks. A cowbird might muck up the host's nest, forcing them to rebuild and start over so the host is better aligned with the cowbird's schedule. A honey guide will hold off laying her egg in its favoured host nest, the bee eater. Instead, she incubates her egg internally for a day before laying, giving her egg the developmental advantage over the others. Some parasites, though, take a more active approach when it comes to finding an opening. That's right, destroying the host's nest is the passive approach. What? Males and females will work as a team. The male will goad the host parents into attacking him, drawing them away from the nest, giving his mate the opening she needs to sneak in and lay. Some other parasites scare the hosts away. This is the common cuckoo's strategy. The common cuckoo bears a passing resemblance to a sparrowhawk. They have the same grey head and barred chest. When the small warbler sees a hawk circling their nest, they will take cover and wait for the threat to pass, which gives the cuckoo the opening she needs. Other cuckoos are so adept at this strategy that the birds in the genus Hyrocopsix, didn't pronounce that right, are known as hawk cuckoos, surnamed because they closely resemble the hawks they mimic. And these are not to be confused with a different bird, the African cuckoo hawk, which is a hawk that just so happens to look like a cuckoo. So try to keep that straight. In India, the common hawk cuckoo bears a resemblance to the shikra hawk. And this is no coincidence. Even in the way the cuckoo flies and alights on a perch, it performs a perfect reenactment of the hawk's own motions. As a side note, these birds are also popularly known as brain fever birds because of the repeated piercing call they make, which supposedly sounds like someone saying brain fever. These calls are persistent, rise in pitch, and can go on for hours. Would you like to have a listen? Let's roll some audio. It's enough to give you a brain fever. Yeah, if you're forced to listen to it for long enough. Anyway, mimicry is a pretty good strategy because many small birds have learned that if a cuckoo turns up in their neighbourhood, it's a bad sign, and they will attack and drive it away. So, if you can pretend to be something else, you've got the edge. This type of mimicry is known as Batesian mimicry, where the mimic takes on the form of a predator. But then there are other parasites that take a different tack with the whole mimicry thing, 
and try to disguise themselves as a less threatening bird so they can slip in unmolested. Cuckoos in the genus Cernicluis, again not pronounced correctly, all bear a resemblance to drongos. Drongos have quite a distinct silhouette, if you know what you're looking for. In particular, they have forked, flared-out tails. It's a fashion choice these cuckoos have co-opted for themselves, making them a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's suspected it allows the female to get close to a nest without causing alarm. This is known as aggressive mimicry, where the dangerous creature pretends to be something harmless to lull its prey into a false sense of security. Of course, mimicry doesn't stop here. For a cuckoo to successfully parasitize a nest, it has to break through several lines of defense. We have covered the first, the cuckoo needs to get past the parents and lay the egg. Once the egg is in the nest, the next step is for it to be accepted by the host. This is the second line of defense, because if the host can identify an imposter, they will reject it. Often, this is their best chance to foil the cuckoo, and the stakes are high. The cost of raising someone else's egg is mighty steep. Not only do you miss your chance to pass on your genetic material, but the energy and time you would have devoted to that mission gets wasted on raising a filthy freeloader. So, naturally, you want to try to shut that down. The result has been an evolutionary arms race between parasite and host. A host wants to develop strategies to spot an alien, and the parasite wants to get better at hiding in plain sight. And by looking at several examples, we can see the different stages of this arms race playing out. In Australia, there is a beautiful little cuckoo called the Shining Bronze Cuckoo. They have vivid iridescent green wings, so it would make more sense if they were called the Shining Emerald Cuckoo. But, uh... What do I know about naming birds? The bronze cuckoo targets grey fantails, which lay pale eggs with pinky speckles. The cuckoo's egg is very much larger and darker in colour. Any casual observer would spot it immediately, and indeed we would think the fantail would as well. But they do not. There are two things that could be happening here. Either the cuckoos have only recently begun to target fantails, and the smaller bird has not yet learned to look carefully at her eggs and spot the fake. Or there is another theory that the dark egg might be a sign to other cuckoos, to tell them that the nest has already been taken, and to find somewhere else to lay. But one would think this situation could not stand for long. Eventually, evolutionary pressure will select for birds that are better able to tell the difference between the genuine article and the counterfeit. In turn, that will put pressure on the parasite to progressively lay eggs which better resemble those of the host, as the common cuckoo does. In turn, some hosts have responded to that by laying eggs that have different markings or are unique to each individual bird. Female masked weaver birds in Africa don't all lay the same coloured eggs. Some lay white eggs, some lay blue eggs, some even lay speckled eggs. However, the cuckoo that preys on them, the Diedrich cuckoo, can only lay one type of egg. Sadly for the cuckoo, because the weavers build hanging baskets that conceal their eggs from the outside, the cuckoo can't know what colour of egg is in the nest until she squirms in, by which stage it is 
too late to change nests. It's a gamble she has to take. Curiously, some host species have better rates of rejecting parasite eggs than others, and no one is quite sure why. Now once, or if a host identifies the invader egg, they have different ways of retaliating. Some birds just kick it out of the nest, others will abandon the nest and build a new one somewhere else. And yet others will build a new nest right on top of the old nest, basically smothering the invader. But of course, if the host retaliates, sometimes the parasite can respond in kind. If someone kicks out a cowbird egg, things can get nasty. The cowbird don't take too kindly to this behaviour. Now cowbirds are finchy looking things in the American blackbird family. They're kind of like a beefy sparrow. To try and encourage, air quotes there, encourage the host to accept their eggs, female cowbirds will keep tabs on hosts, swinging by every now and again to make sure her egg is still safe and cared for. If she sees a host reject her egg, there will be repercussions. You destroy the cowbird's egg, the cowbird gonna destroy your nest. It's believed this tactic teaches the host that it's better to accept the parasite and do their best to raise it and their own chicks rather than lose everything. This practice has delightfully been termed mafia behaviour. We're going to make you enough you can't refuse. You raise this child as your own. You name me godfather and we can uh, guarantee your protection. Uh, Accidents happen all the time. I'd hate to see an accident before your family. Best Marlon Brando impression ever. Now, if the host fails to spot the parasite egg before it hatches, it's basically game over. Once the chick is hatched and in the nest, the foster parent will almost certainly raise it to adulthood. Now maybe you'd think the foster parent would have the chance to reject a baby that doesn't look like it, but no, it doesn't, and there are good reasons for that. No doubt you would have heard stories about how chicken babies can imprint on humans or dogs if they hatch and that's the first thing they see. First thing they see, they think it's their mother. It's a survival strategy for the chick to quickly identify and imprint on its parent. 99 times in 100, the real parent bird is the first thing they see. Usually, this evolutionary tactic works well, but occasionally it can produce a humorous result on a farm. Well, the same thing also happens to the parent bird. When their chicks hatch, they imprint on them and are then driven to feed, protect, and care for their young. This is what brood parasites take advantage of, and it's the reason why hosts almost always accept the changeling chick, even though they usually look nothing at all like their normal young. And it seems Evolution is unwilling to give up this attribute as well. After all, it's rather a risky proposition to abandon your young unless you're 100% sure the chick isn't yours. But There is one exception. There's always an exception. As far as ornithologists know, fairy wrens in Australia are the only birds capable of identifying a cuckoo after it's hatched. Bronze and fantail cuckoos frequently target these tiny colourful birds. But they have a clever way of sussing out the imposters. While the mother is sitting on her eggs, she will sing to them. 
The song is sometimes described as sounding like a purr. I think of it as a sweet little lullaby. While in their eggs, the chicks learn this song, and when they hatch, the babies incorporate it into their begging calls. It seems the cuckoo chicks don't learn the song while in the egg. When they fail to produce it upon hatching, it tips the parents off that something isn't right. They will either reject the cuckoo from the nest, or otherwise abandon the nest entirely. In a sense, the secret song between mother and chick acts as a password. The chicks are born and the mother says, Hello, my darlings, welcome to the world. Please input your password. The cuckoo looks around awkwardly for a second and then says, Ah, password one, two, three, and promptly gets shoved out of the nest. Again, proving the importance of always having a secure password. So it turns out being a cuckoo isn't quite as easy as it first seemed. They have to navigate quite a few obstacles before the little leech is even born. But assuming you're not in a fairy wren nest, if the egg is allowed to hatch, you're basically in the clear. Once hatched, the cuckoo parent doesn't do anything else, and it's on the baby to enact step three, eliminate the competition. Now, if you're a cuckoo baby, you know your best chance of survival is to take out the competition. No point having the host waste energy feeding their own young, that would be silly. So the cuckoo chick quickly gets on with the business of murdering its nestmates. Although I should point out that not all parasite chicks do this. Cowbirds don't, but they have a knack for being bigger, louder, and better beggars than the host nestlings, and frequently outcompete them, no murder required. In the best case scenario, some of the host chicks will survive, but studies have shown that those raised with a cowbird chick almost always grow up stunted. In a worst case scenario, they slowly starve to death. So, you know, maybe murder by another name. Although every now and again, the cowbird does get a taste of its own medicine. There is one bird that cowbirds occasionally try to take advantage of, but it never works out too well for them. If a cowbird manages to slip its egg into an American goldfinch's nest, the only thing that awaits their baby is a slow starvation. You see, the American goldfinch has an all-vegetarian diet, and they only feed their chicks grass seed. But for a cowbird to survive, they need different nutrition, insects and bugs and the likes. So in these cases, no matter how much the dutiful parents feed their false offspring, it doesn't do them a lick of good, and the cowbird baby slowly dies of starvation. Yeah, sometimes karma is a bit. Meanwhile, the common cuckoo baby has no desire to be outcompeted by its nestmates. As soon as the cuckoo hatches, operating entirely on instinct, while still blind and naked, it will work itself under any other egg in the nest. Then, using a special hollow in its back, it will balance the egg and hoist it up and over the edge of the nest and boot it out. And if any of its foster siblings are unlucky enough to have hatched before it, no worries, it gets rid of them in the same way. For such a tiny newborn, it's quite the feat of strength to eject its nestmates, but they are dogged in their desire to kill anything sitting next to them. How does it know to do this? Well, evolution can produce some pretty amazing behaviours. And cuckoos aren't the only ones that do it. For chicks sharing a nest with a greater honey guide, their fates may be even more gruesome. Honey guide chicks are born with a needle-sharp hook on their beak. They lose this as they grow, but when they're fresh out of the egg, 
it serves an important function, shiving their nestmates. The blind baby honey guides will prowl its nest, seeking anything small and warm, which it will then bite repeatedly. This is not a quick death either. It often takes hours, sometimes days, for the bee-eater hatchlings to die from internal bleeding. It's probably the most violent death that awaits any chick unlucky enough to have a parasite in its nest. Compared to being pushed out while still an egg, the cuckoo is almost kind by comparison. So you see, parasite babies are hardcore little tykes, perfectly comfortable doing whatever it takes to survive. Now, whatever the method may be, once the competition has been taken care of, the alien baby is free to focus on making its hosts work as hard as possible to get as much food as it can down its gullet. Here too, a parasitic nestling has a number of strategies to really crack the whip on the hosts. Common cuckoos have begging noises that mimic a whole nest of babies, and these calls motivate the parents to feed them. Likewise, honey guides have markings inside their mouths that mimic those of the bee-eater chicks, again producing the same effect on the parents. And the chicks of Hirschfield's bronze cuckoo have patterns on the underside of their wings that look like the open mouth of a baby fairy wren. The match is so close they even reflect ultraviolet light, just like the real thing. It's pretty dark. With constant feeding, the chicks grow quickly and soon become bigger than the hosts, but by this stage, the game is well and truly over. No matter how grotesquely oversized their babies become, the hosts will continue to feed the chick until it fledges and leaves the nest without so much as a thank you. Now, we asked before why the host accepts the chick even as it grows into a gigantic horror that bears no resemblance to itself. This has to do with how parents imprint on their young. But now we have another question. How does the parasitic baby know that it's a cuckoo and not a member of the host's species? Why don't cuckoos think they're warblers? These are the birds that raise them, after all. If baby birds normally imprint on their parents, why don't parasitic chicks? Turns out that's rather a tricky question, and ornithologists don't have a good answer. There is some anecdotal evidence that species like the Pacific call, large migratory cuckoos from New Guinea and Australia, will visit their young while they're being raised by the host, but this hasn't been widely studied, and most evidence seems to suggest that parasitic birds never show any interest in their chicks once the egg has been laid. The best theory is that it comes down to vocalisation. Studies on cowbirds have shown that their chicks take far greater interest in the calls of their own species than their hosts. It could be that when they hear the call of their own kind, it awakens something inside them that tells them they're a cowbird, almost like they're sleeper agents waiting to be activated. And the same could be true for other parasites. Whatever the reason, the young of cuckoos and cowbirds and honey guides, not to mention that duck, don't imprint on their foster parents in the way other birds do. Although, there is at least one way the common cuckoo does imprint on its host. We mentioned before that some individuals of the same host species can sometimes lay different coloured eggs to fool the parasites. Well, some cuckoos also do the same thing. Throughout the common cuckoo's range, there are some 100 different species that it can parasitise. 
One of the best ways for a cuckoo to sneak its egg into a host nest is to disguise it as one of the host's eggs. But each of these host species has a different coloured or patterned egg, so how does the cuckoo match its egg to the host's? Well, the coloured egg that a female cuckoo lays will always be the same. So, for each individual female, there is a specific host it will always target, and it won't go near any other potential hosts. It learns how to target that host by imprinting upon them as a chick. So that means there are some common cuckoos that only target reed warblers, others that only target meadow pipits, and some that only target European robins. Each group of cuckoos that favours a particular host are known as gannets, and they will only target that one host species throughout their entire life because that's the type of egg they lay that can match the hosts. A female can mate with any male, but she will always lay her egg in the specific host species nest that she grew up in. And this works because the genetic information that encodes for egg appearance is only carried on the bird's W sex chromosome, which females have and males don't. So cuckoos inherit the type of egg they lay from their mothers, so the nest they were born in will be the type of egg they'll lay in the future. And that's why it's important for them to imprint on the host. They need to know who to target when they're old enough. It's a pretty clever trick. Now, when we began this episode, it was tempting to think that cuckoos and other brood parasites were complete freeloaders, living the easy life. But in reality, they put a tremendous amount of energy into sneaking an egg into someone else's nest. Evidence has shown that they spend a lot of time scoping out a suitable host. They make decisions on which parents they want to raise their chicks based on similar information that goes into birds choosing their mates. The cuckoo wants their egg to go to a good home, after all, so they try to pick good parents. They might make this decision based on the host's physical appearance, how well they've built their nest, or even how successful they were at raising chicks in the past, which requires the cuckoo to retain that information for at least a year. And they have to do all this stakeout work in secret. Then they need to find an opening to get their egg into an unattended nest at the right time, so as to not raise suspicion and then hope like hell that their egg doesn't get rejected. To maximise their chance of having a chick make it to maturity, they'll lay eggs in multiple nests, which means they now have to keep tabs on numerous nests all over town. It's quite a mental feat to say the least. And so, after doing all the math, maybe it would be easier just to raise your own baby. And no doubt that's probably why the vast majority of birds do. But to call the cuckoo a lazy freeloader is to ignore a lot of what makes them a successful bird. It's a lot of hard work being that lazy. And on that note, that brings us to the end of our exploration on cuckoos, their other cheating friends, and our broader discussion on parasitism in the bird world to an end. I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes learned a little something, and have a new appreciation for some of the flying freeloaders out there. Now, next time, we're going to look at one big old ridiculous bird, the emu, and I might have a couple of humorous stories to tell you as well. I hope you'll join me then. Now, if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about our old friend, the Greater Racket-Tailed Drongo. It's a bird with one mouthful of a name, 
And if you want to find out why they have a mildly insulting name, at least in Australian slang, well, now is your chance. And for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Better the Week, or one word, link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innes of Seni Illustration, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Antonio, I hear the goldfinch is not serving the pepperoni. What do you mean the goldfinch is not serving the pepperoni? I'm saying it's not serving the pepperoni. My baby can't survive on cabbage. We'll have to make him an offer he can't refuse. Capiche, hey, I'm walking here. What do you mean? I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm walking here.